multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again. We will learn to improve our power play with the international best-selling author of The 48 Rules of Power, Robert Greene. Join us as we struggle to survive in a culture full of bullshit, begin the long overdue task of correcting political correctness, and learn before it's too late that you don't judge anyone until you can feel their punch. And now, asking that you and your friends and neighbors band together to replace every member of the House of Representatives, I am Rich Evers, and my partner in crime, teacher, fighter, author, poet, an all-around swell guy with a fantastic accent, Daniele Bolelli. Away we go. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 29 of the Drunken Taoist podcast. And without further ado, here is our hero, Daniele Bolelli. Let's get the ball rolling. Thank you so much to our sponsor, Datsusara, the greatest hemp gear out there. Um, computer bags, backpacks, travel bags, um, gi if you guys roll jujitsu, or a whole variety of other things. Check out his website, onnit.com, for some of the greatest supplements, food products, exercise equipment. I'm extra particularly intrigued with their exercise equipment. Every other, they have this whole new line of uh, the zombie, kettlebells. The zombie yes. kettlebells. They are Ridiculous. so badass. They are beautiful. And apparently the sculptor who does them balances it out, so it's just like a cannonball one, so it doesn't have any weird... Yeah, because, I mean, you see a lot of kettlebells that are sculpted that look good, but they are, you know, they are not functional for wrist. working out, yeah. and there's no point then. This is a whole different game. They are designed to be used. Um, short design the um, out of thailand for your wearing pleasure the greatest t-shirts in the world yoga pants uh, long sleeves the whole thing check oh, out the website cool dresses and stuff like that as well and just intriguing designs and new ones all the time fantastic guy absolutely i think jerry garcia never really died actually just moved to <laughs> thailand and is part of the short design business because he certainly is blessed by the spirit of jerry garcia um, our affiliates, Korokao Chocolate, Audible.com. So whether you have a sweet tooth or you know somebody with a sweet tooth and you are looking for chocolate, great chocolate at that, by the way, or you need audiobooks, please, with all of these things, regular sponsor, affiliate sponsor, check our episode notes for discount codes and um, work for you guys, work for us. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. anything else we want to throw out here now no we'll keep the amazon link the donation at the end so we don't waste too much of your time before the beginning of an episode i just do a quick shout because we are thanksgiving time so it is getting to be the gift giving season um kiva cards are available and i don't think there's anything you can better do for a young person than get them a 25 dollar kiva donation card and then they can pick somebody in the world to help out and the money will come back to them. So if they don't enjoy it that much, they can cash it out of their PayPal account 18 months from now. 
or they can do what we hope they do is take that $25 and relend it again when it comes back around. So check out Kiva.org. As always, if you contact me at therichimon, T-H-E-R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N at gmail.com, I can uh, send you a free loan through Kiva so you can try it out and check it out and uh, help somebody get a cow or a water pump or a new hoe. And not that kind of hoe, everybody. I know. How was that? gardening hoe. What did he just say? I know. Okay. I'm always Good to know. <laughs> so... I have a tiny little story I want to share just because it was kind of a nutty thing. I was um, found myself in Carson a few weeks back uh, doing a job, and there's a Filipino fast food restaurant that I found out about on Anthony Bourdain's show. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's crazy, and it really is like little Philippines when you get there. And um, I've been there once before, and I'd come back. I was by myself this time, and you kind of get settled into this place, and I got the Salisbury steak with the fried egg and the rice and a Spam slider. Now, being from Hawaii originally, Spam is a very intricate part of that uh, mm-hmm. di- di- diet as well. So the Spam slider was a little late, and I'm sitting there and sort of having this kind of zenish moment because everybody is speaking this wild language but me. And I'm just kind of immersed in it and just enjoying that wa- that kind of washover of you know being in a place where you're not normally at. When the kid comes up with his spam slider and he says, you know, you've been here before. Now, I don't know how anybody could recognize me out of this crowd, but somehow. uh, Yeah, and indeed, you know, about four weeks earlier I had been there. He said, I'm glad you came back because I wanted to tell you something. Apparently, he had given me the wrong change at the register. And about two minutes later, I realized, I think I gave him a 20 and he gave it, or I gave him a 10 and he thought I gave him like a 20. And I went and I gave him the money back. You know, right. why not? Yeah. What does that $4 do for me? Well, he told me that it was his third day on the register. It hadn't been going very well. He'd just gotten the job. And that he was going to be sent back to the kitchen if his register didn't balance out that day. And he said at the end of the day, he realized the only reason his register balanced out is because I gave him that $3 back. <sighs> There's not too many times when you actually... Yeah. Get the feedback on trying to do the right thing in the world. Yep. And that meant so much to me. I mean, like for the whole, still today, it just blows me away. That is an awesome one right there. So, folks, do the right thing. If not always, maybe once in a while, because you never know how it's going to help somebody out. Yeah. Be nice humans. That's always good. And speaking of nice humans, because it is getting to be the holiday season. My wife had me send this for you. Now, the wrapping is not that impressive, but there's something... Pretty amazing in this bag. This uh... Ah, it bites. What? It will. Be careful. Yay. Elfish Santa drunk. That's with... the orgasm counting gnome, bro. It is the orgasm counting gnome. I love this guy. <laughs> I don't think he's going to count very well because I can see him like he's so drunk. He's going to be like, I saw one well, somewhere in there. Everybody's but a winner then. That's this good. Is, ring away. This is awesome. Got the bell. Puffy cheeks from being drunk. Perfect. <laughs> you know, that's thank you so much to your lovely wife. That's the sweetest thing ever. Or no now trouble. I don't have to dream orgasm counting. No, my left one right there. Right there in the bedside counting for Beautiful. you. Beautiful. I am so thrilled. All right, everybody. Don't forget to keep your cards. Give them to your children. Make them realize that helping people out is an awesome thing. Yep. And an awesome interview coming up. We didn't even get to that. Yeah. Robert Green. Great guy. Very, very pleasant type of interaction we had. I mean, we knew he was a great writer. We knew, you know, multi award winning bestselling, you know, all the stuff that you can add. You know, he wrote books that have been read all over the world. Very famous. 
but the interaction with him was really pleasant. He wasn't just, um, he was a very nice guy. Great conversation, it flowed well. So I'll shut up and Here I'll let goes. you guys listen for yourself. Cool. Here we go. Um, Mr. Robert Green here with us. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Robert, as for those of you guys who don't know, if you have been living under a rock or something, has written multiple bestsellers, sold literally by now millions of copies. Um, in many ways, part of Robert's fame goes for being this sort of modern-day Machiavelli, having these, all these books about strategy and... Uh, uh, and in some ways, embracing the bad boy image that goes with it. This, uh, you know, there are the world is a ruthless place. There are tough conditions out there. Learn the game, because otherwise, the same laws and same principles can be applied against you. So every single one I've read, actually, all of his books. They are all masterfully researched. Great, great historical research, written very well, explained beautifully. So you know, I can see why. You know, sometimes you see. Mm, books that become huge bestsellers and you're like how in the world did this thing sell because this is crap can well, you give me an example I'm <laughs> curious <laughs> uh, well I, mean, I have that feeling all the time right uh, I don't have one in mind right now but I'm sure if we go okay. down the bestseller list uh, half of them I would go like really this stuff yeah, yeah, yeah but, okay anyway go on but uh, not in this case this is definitely one of the cases where I it flows per you can yeah. see the logic there so there's um you invented a career for yourself at this this is awesome that's quite brilliant mm. now one of the things that i want to throw out there let's start with the controversial stuff for fun just uh, before we can move to the mellow things it's uh, i read somewhere that they say that your books are the most read in prison other than the bible you have uh, you hold a solid second place. I don't know if that's legend or real or. It also happens to be the most uh, the question I get the most too. Of course, <laughs> I figure. Um, yeah, it's probably true. Right. Uh, I get a lot of anecdotal evidence. I get emails from people in prison. Uh, I know people who work in prison. Right. Um, I'm good friends with a, a guy who works in the Louisiana prison system. Where might be. I'm helping edit a book he's writing on on prisons. Um, you know, people usually bring it up uh, as a way of sort of insulting me, as a way, and I know you're not, right, right, but they're right. trying to say, look, this guy writes book for people who murder others and who are, you know, uh -huh. criminals, and um, that's not what it's about. The of course, prison is is uh, is it just the most brutal environment known to man where you know all the gloves are off now we right. live in a society where we get have the illusion that people are nice and polite but really under the surface <laughs> you know all, right. all kinds of shit's happening yeah. but in prison you don't have the illusion right and so uh, these are human beings and i have a great deal of sympathy for them uh, uh, you know i don't have sympathy for their crimes or the victims i understand that side but as mm -hmm. human beings i have tremendous sympathy for them and the book um can be very helpful in dealing with the the political side of prison oh, life, yeah. and um, and I've had emails from prisoners and letters telling me how exactly they've used it, mm -hmm. etc. 
So I I wear it as a badge. I'm not ashamed of it. I I, I think I, that's awesome. I embrace it, and it's true. And lately, it's been banned in prison. Really? Oh. In a lot of prisons, yeah. And people have used the book to say this prisoner was reading it. And he committed some deed in prison, and the book, you oh, know, kind of the, so, that's so, crap, right? Right, but um, yeah, I, I, it's true, right? That's funny, yeah. Because I mean, part of I guess the controversial aspect, which I'm sure is what you get a ton of the time in the question. I, I just add one thing: sure, sure. I don't think the art of seduction is doing well in prison, and that's a good, that's a good, that's a good thing. Uh, I just want to em- emphasize that. Okay. Anyway, go on. good point. <laughs> anyway, yeah, because I mean, most of your um, all your first few books: yeah. Forty Eight Laws of Power, Art of Seduction, Thirty Three Strategies of War. Um, the 50th law, all of them to one degree or another deal with power play. How to understand uh, the kind of power games that other people play, understand how you cannot be the victim, how you can play the same game to your advantage, all of that. And which make perfect sense because as you say, the reality is the few cases are those where somebody's going to come straight at you when they want to take you down. A lot of cases in polite civilized society is done with a smile and with a handshake and they are the same people who are screwing you over just making the right moves at the same time so that i think is you know there's no argument there that's a fact that's just how things are and so learning part of how the game works is key i think part of where um, the element where you get some uh, the controversy is that particularly in 48 laws of power you cl- you're clearly having fun with some of these and like even the titles of the chapter there are some where you get these uh, uh, some of those that are pretty funny i thought there was uh, i love this one get others to do the work for you but always take the credit yeah love that use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victim pose as a friend work as a spy yeah crush your enemies totally which i wanted to put in parentheses some conan quotation about hearing the lamentation of their women and all the other stuff about conan what's best in life from the uh play on people's need to believe to create a cult like following you know there are all these elements that most people when they read it first they go like oh this is terrible this is mean this is all of that Mm. how do you because I'm sure, again, is the kind of thing that people throw at you all the time. How do you address the idea that some people would think, oh, you're promoting a win-at-all-cost mentality, step-on-the-week philosophy. Do you believe it? Do you, you know, What's your response to the obvious thing that people bring up? Well, um, the philosophy that I'm espousing uh, more than anything is realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's just, we're in a culture of, filled with a lot of bullshit. Right. Uh, nobody really likes to talk about what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And if you could measure political correctness on a scale, you know, like how climate changes or whatever, it's just rising by the day. Um, so I want to correct, uh, you know, a lot of the crap that's out there about, you know, I've worked many different jobs in my life. Right. Many, mm-hmm. from office to construction work to Hollywood. And I see these maneuvers. I see what right. people do behind the scenes. I could tell you stories. Anybody can tell me stories. But nobody writes about this. Mm-hmm. It's as if it doesn't exist. So I'm not espousing uh, Anne Randy in <laughs> politics or Nietzschean right. or whatever. I'm just, when I want to write a book about power, 
I want to write about what really happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say you, the reader, I hope, are an adult, and you can understand that this is explaining to you what's going on. How you use it is up to you. Right. Um, You know, people say, crush your enemy totally. That's really nasty. Uh, I'm sorry, but every business, large business, operates by that principle. Right. From Google to Microsoft to Mm -hmm. IBM, whenever you have any kind of competition in the business world, your first goal is to get rid of them. Either buy them out, crush them. Look at what Microsoft did to Netscape. Nobody knows even knows what Netscape is anymore. (laughs) That's business 101, right? Um, It's not about crushing your... person in the office who's your enemy and if you Mm -hmm. read the law it's clear i'm explaining to you what really goes on in offices in power relationships in the home sometimes Mm -hmm. in politics and um that's that's all it is it's trying to present it as straight as possible so in a way it's almost like you are a martial arts teacher you are Uh teaching the tools of the game this is what happens when you fight this is what you break a bone this is how you avoid the punch this is yeah and then the moral decision of how those um, skills are to be used is left in the hands of the martial arts student in the metaphor we're using well, and in the hands of the reader in the well the martial case. arts is fine I, I the metaphor i would prefer or or no it's just it's just as good mm-hmm. as chess mm-hmm when you're playing chess and your opponent does a very clever maneuver, you don't go, God, what an asshole. Right. I hate that guy. I'm going to kill him. You go, that's a great move. All right, right I've got to counter that move. Yeah. That's what life is like. You got to get get out, get rid of the emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm explaining in my next book, which I will I can talk about later. When people do things to you, um, if it is a nasty thing or unpleasant, it's rarely directed at you. It's because they're frustrated about their wife, their, what's mm-hmm. going on in their house, their their careers, and you're just happening to be there. It's usually not personal. Mm-hmm. And if you're sitting there playing chess and getting really roiled up every time someone does a good move, you can be a lousy chess player. Right. Same thing pro- probably in martial arts. Mm-hmm. So this is approaching life a, a bit as a game. Now, I'm not saying... Your personal life is a game. Sure. I'm talking about your work world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want you to divorce that sense of everything is personal. And I think a lot of people nowadays really have that problem. In the era, particularly of social media, et cetera, everyone's a friend. It's all about friendly relationships. Do they love right. me? Do they like me? Like, like, like. <laughs> and no, it's about getting things done. Right. Are you a good worker? Are you effective? Are you moving in the direction you want in your career? So that's the metaphor I, I generally use. And uh, I know as a quote I love, I don't know if you're into Marcus Aurelius as mm-hmm, an Italian. Of course. Uh, yep. He always says, you know, in the when people get in the boxing ring, they everything goes. And mm-hmm. that's what life is like. So treat yeah. it like that. Yeah. No, that makes- and he said that 2,000 years ago. So there yeah. you go. No, there's a whole stoic tendency there, uh, yeah. guys like Seneca, guys like the whole idea of uh, we live in a universe in which no quarter is given. And, you know, yes. the fact that it sounds so brutal and the reality is behind all the pleasantries, there's definitely a lot of that going on. Yes. In some weird odd ways, almost like Buddhist may not be the word that come to mind when reading some of the titles, but there's a very Buddhist vibe to it in terms of dealing with things for what they are as opposed to what you are projecting them or wishing them to be. Yes. Just this is reality. It's not bad, it's not good, it is what it is. 
you want to deal with it, learn them. You know? Yes, um, it's uh, it's. Uh, I'm not going to go deeply into this, but sort of a non-Christian way of looking mm-hmm. at the world which divides things into good and evil. Yep. And Taoism and Buddhism, and particularly Zen Buddhism, are very much uh, philosophies of looking at the world as it is mm-hmm. and accepting things as they are. That doesn't mean that those religions don't have ethics. They have very much systems of ethics. But it's not dividing everything up into what's good and evil, and it recognizes the fact that every human being harbors a dark side, a negative side, and even an evil side. Sure. So they're much more realistic religions in some ways. Yeah, there's a lot, in fact, that when reading uh, your work, there's a lot of that that, to me, stands out. There's uh, some of the principles are very Taoist in nature. Uh-huh. Some of the principles are very much in line with Zen Buddhism. You uh-huh. know, it fits. And uh, is that, you know, a part of, a, as you are writing, it is like a conscious choice, like there is a link with that, or is it just you are discovering the same principles that are effective, which are the same things that they do? And I don't know where, it's not a conscious thing. I know when I was a kid, um, 16 years old, I picked up Machiavelli's The Prince, mm-hmm. um, and I probably didn't understand a word of it, but I was really drawn to just describing things as they are. The, mm-hmm. the way he wrote just really appealed to me. Um, and so later in life, I discovered that there's an affinity uh, between many things in Buddhism. Right. Um, I myself am very interested in Buddhism, and I practice a form of Zen Buddhism, mm-hmm. have been for many years. And so when I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, I wasn't necessarily conscious of it. I did a lot of research and a lot of material on things going on in China, mm-hmm. uh, ancient China, and incorporated some stories about Zen culture. But it was sort of an unconscious level. There's a sense where, and I think a lot of people in the West, we, I know myself, we're not raised in anything Buddhist, mm-hmm. but we feel really drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And that's how it is. I'm really, really drawn to the calmness that it promotes, to the whole general way of looking at the universe. Um, I just find immensely appealing. And um, so my books don't really reflect a, a, an immersion in the culture, because mm-hmm. I can't say I am that, but sure. a, an affinity of spirit. Yeah, because I mean, one of the points that I've made uh, when bringing up Taoism in the course of the podcast, one of the points that I've made multiple times is the fact that, you know, most religions, you need to follow the theology, have faith, believe, that's what makes you uh, belong, whatever, fill in the blanks, um, you fit with that religion. Things like Taoism or Zen Buddhism, in some ways, you can be a perfect Taoist without ever even knowing what Taoism is. Right. Because the principles are principle of nature. They are principle of just that's how the universe works. Yes. And so people can stumble upon them, not because they've read the Tao Te Ching, just because they've looked at how life and the universe, yes. and then it's that's Taoism, even unconscious Taoism, but it's not any different than conscious one in that regard. That's right. And uh, that's why like some of the, even some of the titles of the chapters that you had, um, like when you are, um, when you speak about assuming formlessness, that's yes. you know perfect Bruce Lee Zen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's classic thing, yeah. right? Or the whole yeah. emphasis of knowing when to stop, which is yeah. repeated seventeen thousand times in the Tao Te Ching about yes. don't go one step too far because that's yeah. where you turn your triumph into failure. The whole emphasis on timing, which I mean, timing is not a Taoist thing. It's like anybody who's not stupid realized that timing is of the essence in right. everything in life. But that, again, is emphasized 
very much. So uh-huh. I found like a lot of references in there oh. that not as direct quotes, but I was like, yeah, that make perfect sense with Taoist ideas. And well, that's excellent. So I, was, you know, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was yeah. having fun with that, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, so that's uh, my unconscious Taoist moment. No, uh-huh. no. I've had other people uh, uh, tell me that as well. So, right. Yeah, and um, and the you know some of the books are very popular in Asian cultures, mm-hmm. um, like Korea, mm-hmm. uh, huge success there, and I think they kind of recognize the uh, the affinity. So. Um, and the thing about the other thing about uh, Buddhism that I love is um, it's something you can kind of discover on your own. Mm-hmm. It's not like this rigid system where you have to go be indoctrinated. Yep. It's discovering things on your own with a little bit of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that very beautiful as well. And so I try and do that a bit with my the books. I'm not putting myself on that level, but I'm opening up this information to you these ideas and i'm sort of letting you the reader explore and do with them what you want absolutely because um we were not a couple of podcasts ago we went through one of our storytelling moments we went through the whole buddha's legend about his life and everything and one of the things we're saying was who cares whether this is historically truth or not you know in most religion the historical truth is a big deal Mm -hmm. because if jesus did or did not say that everything changes yes in Buddhism, you know, did Buddha really say that? Who cares? It's, yeah, really. Does it work? Can you apply that principle and it works in your life? Then take it. Whether it's legend or history, who cares? Right. And if uh, it doesn't work in your life, it doesn't really matter whether it's historically true. What's the yeah. point anyway? And what religion can you have a saying about if you meet the Buddha on the road, you kill him? You know, I love you, you that. Know, you have a, you imagine it's somebody Christian, you know, in Muslim or yep. Christian religion saying that. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. I've hammered on that in a couple of different books. I use yeah. exactly that example, and I use yeah. exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine somebody going around saying, <laughs> if you meet Mohammed, kill him? It's yeah. like, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> See how far that. No, no, but really, I meant it as a sign of respect for. Yeah, try to explain that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So, no, in fact, that's part of what I love about uh, mm-hmm. some strands of Buddhism, some strands of Taoism. Now, even in those traditions there's a lot of crap like anywhere else where yes. there are human beings involved but the principles i find fascinating yes and i agree more open in that mm-hmm. regard Bilelli's opinions on muhammad are his and his alone <laughs> yes i did not state an and opinion please do not be, you know, <laughs> yes just use for an example yes not, there was no no call absolutely no call way. off the fatwas right yeah. now there's no <laughs> just an example edit that edit that <laughs> if you meet charlie chaplin on the that. road yes. kill charlie chaplin Yes, thank you. That's better. Yeah. Uh, You're mentioning now you have worked an ungodly amount of jobs in your life, anything ranging from writing in Hollywood, construction work, and everything in between. Yeah. Um, Was that something that you set out saying, I want to experience life in like 50 different forms? Did you just stumble on it by chance? Was it... I wish I could say it was conscious. It would sound better. Uh, but I was probably a typical kind of somewhat lost young person. Right. But, you know, when you're a writer, um, and I always sort of intended myself to be a writer, um, you don't really want to work in an office or one job. I never had a job more than 11 months in my whole life. I just found it. I just found this being around the same people too stale. Nothing. I wasn't learning anything. Right. I got sick of it. And I just wanted different experiences. 
Um, going to Europe kind of made me do that because I mm-hmm. go to country to country and I'd have to scramble. What kind of job can I get in Greece? I can only do construction because I don't speak the language. In Spain, I could teach English. In Paris, I managed to wangle a ho- uh, working in a hotel. Right. And I just went with the flow there. Uh, I worked in a detective agency here <laughs> in Los Angeles. A, Jesus. A skip tracer. And oddly enough, it's a subject, I have a TED talk out there if you want to look at a TEDx uh-huh. talk, it's sort of the subject of it. Oddly enough, in a paradoxical way, I gave myself the absolute perfect education or what I call apprenticeship mm-hmm. for writing the 48 Laws of Power because I saw power from every different side. Mm-hmm. Um, every kind of possible maneuver. I mean, Hollywood was certainly a great, yeah, uh, <laughs> a great <Right? laughs> place. You say you both say that with zeal. Uh, yeah. It was a great, particularly great environment. But you know, everywhere I went, I saw things, mm-hmm. and um, so just having life experience and exposing myself to a lot of different people uh, was. You know, I, I hate to say it was my conscious plan, but maybe unconsciously that's what I was really, really doing. Right. You know, it makes sense. And I didn't get to write the forty-eight laws of power till really I was about thirty-six years old, thirty-seven. So sort of a late start. You know, mm-hmm. if if I hadn't had that come at that moment, I wouldn't be here today. I of could course. be, I could be homeless, or who knows right. what I would be. No, of course, that's the fascinating, scary, weird, exciting part of life: yeah. the fact that things turn on yeah. moments that at, when they are happening, you have no idea exactly. where they're going to lead. And that's all of a true. sudden you go, damn, that's what started the whole thing. That's, and that's true. What was that process like when the book finally came out? Was the, Did the muse jump on your shoulder and you just poured it out? Or did you have collections of catches of pieces of it everywhere well, that you finally just strung together and, and put into a... Well, I met the, this guy uh, in Italy, 1995, and I kind of improvised. We were walking in Venice, Italy at the one day, a very beautiful day, and he asked me ideas of books. And we, where we were at that time was a very Machiavellian environment where we were working, and I just improvised this idea. And when I ven- then he said, all right, write a treatment. He was a packager of books, a producer of books. Write a treatment, and then we'll go from there. And he wrote a treatment. He loved it. So when I started writing the book, everything – I'm a voracious reader, so I've read a lot of history. Just everything just came to the surface. It just spewed out of me. I was younger. I was eager. I was desperate. And um, I had to obviously do a lot of additional research. But I was able to draw upon a lot of uh, my own experiences and things I had read to just sort of – get the book out there fairly quickly. So you really didn't need those 20 years to get it all kind of put together and ready to go. What's that now? Internally, the 20 years of experience leading up to that moment when you got the book going yeah. was all invaluable to make it happen. Extremely yeah. invaluable. Um, and, you know, so what I'm saying in my TED Talk and in retrospect is sometimes life kind of works out that way and you're not aware of it. You're sort of doing things the right way, but you don't realize it. Um, I was preparing myself to write this book. If I hadn't met this man and I didn't ha- do the 48 Laws of Power, I would have done something else. Sure. I-, I don't think I would have been a failure, sure. but you never know. I probably would have put it into some weird television show or some film or whatever. I would have gotten it out there, but you're, you know, sometimes your instincts, your intuitions are, are on the right side. It's something I talk a lot about in my new book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And um, 
I was just the, like the first story in the 48 Laws of Power about the finance minister who has a party for Louis the Fourteenth because he wants to impress him, and the party is so good that the next day he's thrown in prison for the rest of his life. He didn't realize they had inadvertently made the king feel insecure. <laughs> I had been told that story by somebody in France years ago, and it just sat in my head like, right. I've done that. I did that once. This person, I hear that story over and over again. So that was how a lot of things kind of came up in, in, the, in the book. That's brilliant. Right I just there. love to hear you say it because I know so many young people, you know, people in their early 20s right now are having such a hard time because a lot of them feel like, I don't really know what I want to do. Yeah. But I think a lot of us closer to 40 still don't really know what we want to do, but yeah. at least we've jumped in to examine a few things. And, and you do find yourself in that niche sometimes. You just sort of stumble into it. But uh, I, I just love the idea that they just need to keep going and keep trying things and keep feeling flavors of the world. And eventually, maybe that book will pop out. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, that's really interesting in itself because you always hear this uh, sort of follow your passion and doors will open, all of that kind of stuff, which obviously is a nice message because it's better than... Uh, uh, deal with the crap you're handed at uh, tough luck it's like okay it's a sweeter message at the same time for most people many people are confused by it because as you say like in many cases people don't have a clear sense of what their passion is yeah it's not that they wake up when they are 16 and say i'm gonna be you know in some cases it works that way good for you but in many many cases it doesn't yeah and so it's uh, finding your passion in a weird complicated path yes. like yours is yes very interesting it helps uh, which is as i said the subject of mastery it helps to have a general idea mm -hmm. what you want in life yeah sure uh whether you're of an artistic bent or into science or you're into people so that you don't go into law if you were yeah. meant to write poetry, um, <laughs> you know. Right. But even that is not a loss. Mm -hmm. uh, I have plenty of friends, uh, people I know who went into law uh, because it's lucrative and their parents forced them and they hated it because it's pretty yep. boring. And they, they knew that they wanted to be a writer or an artist. They got out and they used their training in law to help them. You know, it's a training that makes you very disciplined. It knows you how to know, teaches you how to make an argument. Mm -hmm. How to gives you some writing skills. Maybe you apply. You become an art lawyer. I don't know what it is, but you you know having the main thing, the main key to the game is having some connection to who you are. Mm -hmm. So that you don't, are not always listening to other people. Right. So that you can take a step back and say, I hate this job. This mm -hmm. isn't for me. And it's because I was listening to what people were telling me or whatever. Right. If you're able to have that self-awareness, you'll find yourself eventually. Yeah, because... Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, I was, I was just agreeing. Yeah, because part, part of the game of finding yourself through this tortuous path that may not look linear, you know, we are so used to linear thinking where we like, you know, we want to go to point from to point C, well, we have to step through point B if we start to point A and that's how it's done. And most of the time, as you make plenty clear in your books, it doesn't work that way. That's right. linear logic is sweet in theory, but that's not how most of reality works. Yeah. And the very fact that something that you do allude, particularly mastery, but in other books as well, this whole idea that some of your experiences that may not be the typical prerequisites to get to a certain positions, some of them that may look like they have nothing to do are exactly what you need in order to come to that place from a different angle. Yeah. It's key. 
it's brilliant to think of it. Yeah. Now, how do because here you can't really plan that, I guess, too well because you can't say I'm gonna do something that has nothing to do with it because it's gonna give me the tool to <laughs> yeah, you know. Right. It's like right. so. Do you just feel like you make the best of you know your role with experience? You try to absorb as much as possible and well, I'm, it's it's hard to exactly put into words. Um, it's I keep I come back a little bit to stoicism again. Mm-hmm to ideas in Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. It's sort of like a philosophy that you have in life mm-hmm. where everything that happens is sort of for a purpose, a point. Right. They call it in Stoicism amor fati, which is I write about in several of my books. It literally means love of fate. Mm-hmm. So you embrace your fate. And uh, Marcus Aurelius compares it to a fire that burns everything in its path. So everything that happens to you is like wood in the furnace. Mm-hmm. And that's how you approach things. So you're not, I'm not consciously going out there and finding jobs where there are people who are assholes who are going to be doing power moves <laughs> so I can learn them, right? right? But when I'm witnessing them, or, the, or a year later or six months later, I'm going, wow, what was that? What is happening here? What does that mean about human nature? Uh, maybe I can incorporate that in a play. Right. Or uh, maybe I could write something about it. Everything that happens to you, you're 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 using mm-hmm. in some way. You're not complaining. You're not going, oh man, if I didn't have that job, I could have gotten something else with so much more money. Wah 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 wah. Yeah. No, there was a reason for it, and it was a great reason. Um, and you can look at everything in life. You know, you're 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 going to an interview that's really important, and you're stuck in traffic, and you're going to be an hour late, and you're fuck fuck fuck. Well, wait, now maybe here's a way to teach yourself some patience Mm -hmm. to realize, you know, I always do this thing in meditation. Uh, They have this idea that always fascinates me in Buddhism called the kalpa. And a kalpa is a period of years that is so vast we can't even imagine it. It's like 20,000 billion Mm -hmm. years. And that's how long, you know, things go. Just imagine a kalpa in, in the future or in the past, and you being stuck in traffic doesn't matter. <laughs> and being stuck in traffic teaches you that. Right. Everything teaches you something. So it's a philosophy like that more than anything that, you know, I could say is a conscious ABC-like <clears throat> plan. No, that makes perfect sense. And it's funny because when people say something like that, but they put it in too rosy of, uh, you know, there's a reason for everything. Well, there's that kind uh, of yes, motivational I, I speech. I saw God's plan. Yeah, you want to punch yeah. them. And yet there's an element of it that yeah. it's, as you're putting it, it's totally right because the yeah. fact is after you are done saying, no, shut up, this just sucks, it's horrible and it's done. It's like, okay, you got it off your chest and you're right, it is a bad situation, now what? You know, you can right. keep whining for the next five years about it. Right. Or you can say, okay, I was handed some shitty cards, What? how can I make the best of the current situation? Or even turn it into something absolutely brilliant. Like absolutely. Like I talk in the book of 50 Cent, uh, The 50th Law, where, you know, he's, he's shot in the head, mm-hmm. it looks like he's gonna die. His career is over, he can't do, do music anymore. Right. He can't go back on the streets hustling or dealing drugs. He looks like he's finished. Mm-hmm. And essentially, he's dealing with a lot of anger and he decides that in fact, I mean, it's not like a conscious day of deciding, sure. but this is sort of the process, that actually this was, this was an incredible thing that happened to me. Because A, I've got incredible street cred 
now I'm going and I'm going to start rapping, and everybody knows my story. Right. And it's going to, you know, so it's it's just like the greatest thing that could happen to me. <laughs> right. And um, it kind of changed my voice, mm-hmm. you know. I've got a, like this little hole in my mouth, and it makes me have this sort of lisp. So you're going to hear it. You're going to know the story about me. I, you know, on and on and on. In fact, nearly dying does this. Anything right. you, you do has that element. Um, and I know there's a tendency to get to turn it into a Pollyannish, sure. everything's wonderful in life. That's not what right. I hope this isn't about. No, you know? definitely. Okay. And I think, I think that's the key is having that, because uh, the message may sound the same, but the yeah. difference is substantial. Because in one case, is the Pollyanna crap that's like, everything is for the best, blah, 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 which is annoying. And yeah. But the other part is finding a way to be an alchemist in a way, to turn whatever yeah. crap is thrown your way by life, to turn it into something right. positive right. is key. Not because it's, uh, God tells you, not because it's uh, it was destined to be, it's because these are the cards I have, that's the reality of the game. Yeah. How can I play them in such a good way that I can look back at this moment right. and don't want to shoot myself? Exactly. You know? And, and you can totally fail at those moments too. Those crossroads, at those yeah, those those sure. big moments, you can definitely grab a bottle and fuck them up really good. Well, you know, that's a failure is another <laughs> subject uh, which I t- talk a lot about. Um, and it's it's like if you can get the attitude where failing is not a bad thing, mm-hmm. it's easy to say that here in this office. Everybody knows how awful it's. Like if I have a book that just doesn't sell at all <laughs> in the moment, right. I'm pretty miserable. But like six months, eight months later, I know, all right, I learned some great lessons. And what I try and say in my new book is anybody who really makes it um, in the world as an entrepreneur or whatever has multiple failures because it's through learning what you're not good at, what your weaknesses are, that you learn how to improve yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even failures are good. I guess the thing that I don't like is the the optimism, the optimistic outlook that just everything is great when it turns into something passive. Yep. It's yep. more like this is a way to make you active. It's not just a matter of loving everything around the world, right. you know, and hugging trees, et cetera. It's about making everything in your life active, mm-hmm. you know, and have an active philosophy. Yeah, because that's the opposite of being a victim, is figuring yeah. out things that other people may let them victimize them yeah. by saying, this thing happened to me. And yes, that thing happened to you, now what? How right. are you going to respond to that? That's why I like your idea of thinking of life as a game, yeah. whether one uses the chess metaphor or any other game. Not because it means that we don't take it seriously or it's not a big deal, but because uh, the idea that in a game, as you put it, is not personal. Right. Things happen. Yes. Good things, bad things, you're lucky, you're unlucky. How are you going to use the luck or bad luck? Yes. How are you going to respond? And, right. And that's life, really. And that's what's uh, fascinating yeah. about the idea of realism, as you put it, in yes. how you apply these principles. Yeah. I've always loved the notion that without the possibility of failure, there is no possibility of success. Yeah. So that is a true certainty. Well, well we're, I think. we're um, you know, when I don't know how deep I want to go here with it, but like in evolution, there's the concept like, there's always an animal above you that's that's your predator, and it kind of keeps a limit on you, um, evolutionarily speaking, and it keeps a balance of nature. Mm-hmm. Now, we humans don't have anybody above us, and we can get extremely grandiose, and we can think we're the greatest thing in the universe, and we it's our tendency 
to lose a sense of our own limits. Um, and so if you have success, like in your 23, 24, you sell a book, your first thing is that the balloon is like inflating. Mm-hmm. Your head is just inflating. Wow, I've got the golden touch. I can write this book now. I can do that. And it's only when the balloon the balloon is burst that you realize your limits, you realize what you suck at, mm-hmm. what you're not good at. Um, and I suck at many things, and I discover it, you know, even in writing. Right. I discover, I, God, man, that really is really bad writing. Right. I got to work on it. If I if everything if I thought everything I wrote was just pure gold, uh, it would be terrible. Right. You know. So yeah, you're in what you don't do well. You're learning from co- continually. Yeah, that's like what you bring up is an example of when ego works against you, yeah. where rather than being a motivating factor in terms of pride and the fire under your ass, it becomes this thing that you get caught in your own hype and you lose yeah. track that no, you really need to do a good job. It's not, you can just say, it's me, so it must be wonderful. It's like, right. yeah, that's sweet. Now let's work for real. You that's know, right. Yeah, that's, those are definitely the traps of the ego, big time. Now, in the last book, in Mastery, you are, uh, you're, you're going in a direction in some ways similar, in some ways different. Because yes. you're clearly going, you're dropping some of the the part that people give you crap about the darker aspect of the yes. power game, and you're going more about self actualization more, and uh, I apply similar principle but in a different direction. Yes, you want to expand on the last one? How it's a bit different from your previous work? Well, um, what it what it's. What it's about is I'm kind of fascinated uh, by this other form of intelligence that we Mm -hmm. humans have that isn't really discussed very much. Um, And it's the intelligence that people have when they've been doing something for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not necessarily be just one thing. It's not like you've been just writing one book your whole life or whatever. It can be a myriad of skills. But at a certain point, you have this kind of practical intelligence. It's not a book intelligence. Mm -hmm where you know you have a feel for things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say that very much in martial arts, obviously in chess it very much applies. In anything manual or with the hands or physical, it's clear. But it also happens in the sciences. It happens in business. Mm-hmm. And it happens certainly in something like writing or the arts. You've been doing it so long that it's at your fingertips. You have an intuitive feel for it. To me, in, in a world that we celebrate, intelligence intellectual intelligence you know that you can measure mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is much more interesting mm-hmm. uh, this is much more powerful this is really what the brain was designed for doing okay so nobody really writes about that I know Malcolm Gladwell kind of covers it in blink and outliers but he has a much different way of thinking about things than I do um, and I wanted to celebrate this intelligence show you that it has nothing to do with whether you went to a good university mm-hmm. or your parents were brilliant or yeah, on and on and on. It's something that happens through time, mm-hmm. over time and exposure and practice and that you can reach it. It's not, uh, demystify all these concepts of talent and genius and just Einstein was born that right. way, Mozart was born that way, all this crap. Just demystify it and show Mm -hmm. that actually these people go through a process that you can describe. So I'm going to describe the process for you um, as detailed as I can so that you no longer can give the excuse, oh, I wasn't born that way. I just, I I can't do it. You may not want to do it. You may not be interested. 
but you no longer have an excuse. And I don't want to have the idea that it's just about the Einsteins in the world. Mm -hmm. I made a point. I was interviewed uh, for the New York Times a while ago, and I said, the guy who did the work on my house, the, the tile work on my patio, he's a master. He's been doing it for 25 years. Uh, he has a feel for it. He knows exactly where the tiles are going to buckle, what looks good, how to do da 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 da, da. You know, it can be in any field. So um, that's sort of what the book's about. There's a um, great uh, Taoist story, I believe it's in Chuanzu, where he talks about uh, butcher. How do you pronounce it in actual English? Butcher. 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 Yes, I Thank have you. that in here. Yeah. Oh, you have that. Yeah, that's. I forgot that I, it was in there. I it's, have a quote. Uh, it's a great story, right? Because you want to go into that one? Or? Well, you mean about the butcher who just knows where all the yeah, sinews yeah, are and yeah, he just yeah, cuts yeah. it perfectly? Yeah. Well, what, what I'm. The, the, in, in, in Taoism and in Buddhism, they have a concept of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's something it's hard to des- describe, and who knows how it's... Tra- well, that is literally the translation of the word Tao. Right. Um, but uh, it's hard to put into words, but it's sort of this thing that governs the motion of everything in the universe, and you can't really put it into words. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a... a the, I call it in my book the dynamic. Right. Uh, it's just my approximation of it. And so this man who's been a butcher for so many years, he's not thinking about the meat that he's carving. He's like one with it. And he's, he's with how it exists, what makes it what it is. So he's able to just cut as if he's part of it, not with, in an unthinking manner. Um, and so I want to show you that that's something very similar that happens in all kinds of fields. Yep. Um, but... You know, that, that concept of the way that permeates the universe and that you're understanding it either as a manual laborer, which is something really fascinating yeah. about Asian cultures, mm-hmm. where they celebrate manual labor in that sense. You know, in Japanese culture and Zen Buddhism, a calligrapher or, or a tea ceremony or anything, the ability to make something really well is a spiritual thing. Yep. You are kind of one with the material. It's something we really miss. And I very much want to bring that back in this book. Absolutely, because that's ultimately what being in a state of flow is, uh, where you have mastered a field enough, but not just master as you put through measurable intelligence. You yeah. know, I've gone through all the steps, now I'm a master. Well, that's you have a lot of knowledge and that's great, but then there's that step more, the mastery level, the, when you are in this state of flow where it looks like magic, where yes. you can pull off things that someone else look at it is like, how is it freaking possible that in the case of the guy, he can use the same knife to go through <clears throat> a zillion oxen and cut them all up and butcher them without ever dulling the blade yeah. is because he has this intuitive feeling not to eat any of the bones where yes. everything is. So he's going through empty space yeah, and he can't really teach it to somebody else because his experience, his feel yes. is not like, well, first you go 30 degrees, no. then you curve. It doesn't work that no. way. And that's, the, as you put it in uh, Eastern culture, there's this idea that you can achieve that through any activity. Yes. You can do it through tea ceremony. You can do it through strategy. You can do it through martial. You can yes. do it through every single art there is in the world. Yeah. Is but a vehicle to get that. Yes. I mean, it's an art. It's great in itself. There's something cool about that field. But that's why, to me, I'm much more interested about 
I don't care whether somebody's into in what they are into in the specifics or the particular art form they are into, or it may not even be an art form in most people's opinion, the right. field they are into or whatever. I'm interested in how they take that one little field and they are able to use that to channel this ability, this energy in a way that transcend specific narrow field knowledge. Right. That's where you have a mastery of life at that point. It's not right. just, I mean, some people are amazing at doing their job and they get into the state of flow and they forget it the second they turn around and they do something else. So unfortunately yeah. that mastery doesn't extend to life. Yes. But if you have that in that field, you know what's required, you know the touch, you know the feel. It's not so damn hard to then be able to apply it elsewhere. Yes. And that's what I dig about the book a lot, this idea of finding that and the examples you use are from all walks of life. Right. Which is the point, right? Not yes. just arguing. And that's why I strongly, strongly recommend the book to anybody who is alive really because this oh, is what you. life is it's not <laughs> about uh, a field it's not about uh, or even if you're dead yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> you may find it useful anyway right um, the, yeah i mean i cover uh so i have like an einstein the mm -hmm. the extreme but then i uh, in the book i talk about um these polynesian navigators mm -hmm. um to show you that it's these are the extremes yep. from what we would consider very primitive culture to the most sophisticated. And essentially, these are navigators, a system of navigation that goes back maybe 3,000 years, somewhere in that vicinity. Right. Uh, people who were basically Stone Age technology, using canoes, mm -hmm. navigating vast spaces of the ocean. They live in mostly water environment. And how they conquer that environment, not conquer it, but sure. learn how to navigate it yeah. um, without any tools, no instruments, zero, and all of the insane dangers. Um, and it's through using our this the, what the brain is intended for and using the their whole bodies in this process. Including their giant balls to get on there. <laughs> yes, yes so you seriously. know about that. Yeah. <laughs> Did I, talk? I don't know if I've mentioned that. But that's true, even that part. All right. Um, they're lying on the bottom of their of their vessel and using their 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 testicles to feel where the ocean is coming, <laughs> um, you know things like that. Wow. To the point where I I describe that they can walk, they can navigate this water world as as easily as a, a taxi driver in London. Mm -hmm. That is real human power. That yeah. is really using the brain in an incredible way, um, and so. Uh, part of the book is a little bit of a dig, unfortunately or fortunately, at our technological obsessed mm -hmm. culture as if the only thing that's really of value is what we can do through machines. Right. But in fact, the brain is this insanely amazing, by far greater than anything that Apple could produce. Mm -hmm. And let's sort of celebrate that the potential of what of what the brain can do as opposed to what you know what what we can produce technologically yeah because so. i mean technology is as good as the people who use it at the end because it's uh or you know, sometimes worse yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely scary are you familiar with jay mcgonagall at all who does the gaming theory and no, only, only no. because she um she what's has, her name <clears throat> jane mcgonagall yeah okay and um she loves to talk about that there's a group out there in that is reaching that 10,000 hours uh -huh. for mastery, but they're all video game players. That we're oh. getting this incredible collection of people that have this sort of nebulous skill. Uh. But what's fun about her is she tries to focus that 
leveling up that they love into getting them to be problem solvers. Oh, yeah. So I just, she just used the 10,000 hours to master anything. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that we now have a million video game masters. Uh-huh. And this year we're going to have five million more. Wow. And um, well, there must be some kind of uh, a skill there. That's drone pilot known. is all I can ever come up with, though. <laughs> I mean, or something else. No. no, and she did. And it was funny. She she did some experiments where you have to live real world style of whatever scenario I introduced to you. And it was, we're out of oil. What are you going to do? Right. And of course, a lot of really shitty, silly ideas out of that popped up in every direction. Yeah. But three or four really great ideas really? came erupting out of that. So. Oh, okay. That's uh, that's just all I have to say. It just made me. That's not opening up a new stuff. idea to me. All yeah, right, yeah. I'm, I'm cool. That's good. I'm into it. No, that's cool. Because uh, yeah, part of this all, the intelligence that we promote, starting in school, is an yeah. intelligence that's measurable. Sta- yeah. You know, you have the standards. You have to fit in how many multiple choice you got correctly yeah. and all of that. And I see how we do it because nobody wants to get sued. And whereas wisdom is hard to measure and is hard mm. to justify. It's like, I'll give you a good grade because you're brilliant. Well, you kind of suck. You know, you can't make it on a judgment call. Or rather, you can, but not in a society where you get sued for everything you say. Mm. <laughs> on the other hand, you know, stupid intelligence, meaning intelligence that if you just put in the hours, you're going to get the results. Yeah. You can measure. It's subjective. There's no argument. But that does not give you the mastery. That does not give you that extra touch, which is... Well, it's interesting that so many of the people that I'm profiling in the book, uh, some of them are contemporary. So Mm -hmm. I interviewed nine contemporary masters. Um, We're not really very good at school. Um, Even Einstein is, you know, it's it's controversial, but he was not a great, a brilliant student. And he was a bit of a washout in academics. Uh, Steve Jobs is a dropout from university, as is Bill Gates. Um, and it was interesting that I, one of the people I interviewed is a man named Paul Graham, uh, who runs a company called Y Combinator in Silicon Valley. It's sort of a, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it, but it's sort of a place that trains people to, to create brilliant tech startups. It's uh-huh. an apprenticeship system. Uh, so he gets thousands of people every year coming to him who want to be part of it with their ideas. And he can see now, he's got a feel for it, this intuitive feel for what makes someone successful or a loser. He can he can identify within five minutes in these short interviews whether you've got it or you don't. Right. And he says it has absolutely zero to do with what university they came from. Absolutely. It can be somebody from Yale or it could be somebody who just walked out of New Mexico from their family, et cetera. There's zero uh, calibration between, you know, or whatever the word is, correlation mm-hmm. between where your your education and whether you're going to be good at this game. There are other factors, like your persistence or strength of character that mm-hmm. could be brought in, but your education has, has really nothing to do with it. And I have many examples in the book of, you know, a, a Thomas Edison, also people... Uh, Faraday, who comes, Michael Faraday, one of the greatest scientists of the 19th century, who comes from a really poor background. His father's a um, basically a blacksmith, mm-hmm. you know. So it's not a, a, a function of measurable intellectual knowledge or even of IQ. Right. In the book, I talk about Darwin and his cousin um, Galton. Mm-hmm. Galton is the name. Um, and Galton had an IQ through the charts. This is before they had IQ measurements, but we've sure. been able to approximate them since then. 
Uh, and Dal- Dal- uh, Darwin had a pretty high IQ, but nowhere near genius level. And it was Darwin who's probably one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. So get rid of these, this, these notions we've developed that it has to do with these measurable intellectual standards. Absolutely. That's why when people are... I've heard that a lot from people who emphasize this idea of, oh, you know, intelligence and smart and kind of implying that that's what I value. And I'm like, maybe we're using the words, we mean the same thing, but we use different words. But no, to me, intelligence is it's nice. It's, it's better than not intelligence, but right. not in and of itself. It doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't tell me whether I'm going to like you or not. It doesn't tell right. me. We can have a conversation, a learned conversation about a topic. Well, boo hoo hoo. Who cares? You know, that's right. not where it matters to me. Is like the people that you run into and you can, as the guy puts it, you feel it. There's something there or there isn't. Yeah. And it's not a, how many books they've read, what school they went to, or even how they can put it into words necessarily their knowledge. Mm-hmm. But there's a level of presence to them. There's a level of intuitive understanding of how life works yeah. that they may have developed in a completely other way, maybe totally unconscious, and they are not even aware of how they did it. But I, I remember years ago when I was doing my construction job, I was in Greece on the island of Crete, I, I ran out of money, so I had to work to get off the island. And um, I, I played backgammon every day with this oh. with these, they, that's all they do, mm-hmm. they just sit out there and play backgammon. Right. And there's this one man, he became my friend, I played with him every day, and he beat me every <laughs> single time. And backgammon has a lot of luck involved, right? you know, the dice, I mean, it's a lot of skill. Right. How could this guy beat me every single time? Right. He was like a master at strategy. But then I would talk to him, and he was absolutely brilliant in other things. He sort of saw everything going on around his life as backgammon. He probably saw people as the little things that you move around the board. (laughs) But he was really this brilliant man, and he he had no work. He never worked. He just sat there and played backgammon. You know, then you'll meet people like that in life. You know, so I, I tend to value those kinds of. And I have a thing. I love taxi drivers. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I go travel all over the world. London taxi drivers are so so much more brilliant than anybody on Wall Street or what. <laughs> These guys are brilliant, right? And women, you know, uh, they have like real skill. If you have to try mm-hmm. and like navigate the streets of London, right? And they also have like worldly wisdom. Yep. So uh, yeah, mastery is not about like intellectual mm-hmm. brilliance. No, and it's not to say that intellectual is bad and is all no. about action. It's like. It's the same thing. It's like whether it's in action, whether it's intellectual fields, in any fields, it doesn't yeah. matter. Is whether you develop the feel for being in flow or not, the mastery or not. Yeah. And uh, that's why, again, read the book, everybody. Mm-hmm. The- yeah, and the thing that the, the main part of the book uh, is what I call the apprenticeship. Um, and uh, I, so it's not, it's not just fun. Mm-hmm. Life isn't going to be about fun. You're not going to just say, oh, I love martial arts i'm going to be great Mm -hmm. at martial arts and it's just going to be barrel of monkeys here there's like real work of course you've got to put in the ten thousand hours and it's going to be um difficult yeah so i want you to look at your life as an apprenticeship when you're in your 20s before you've Mm -hmm. become creative and successful and so what you're doing is shaping your mind is shaping your your future as opposed to the passive approach like I get this job, I get that job, right. I make money. No direction, no purpose. You don't know what it is. Look at it like everything you do matters. Okay, so you could be working at, at, at 
CVS mm-hmm. or McDonald's. But what are you learning from it? Where, where is it getting you? Right. Are, is it getting you so angry that you want another job? I, I don't care what the purpose is, but everything that you look at is part of that apprenticeship that you're mm-hmm. building. And what, what I was interesting in the book where I profiled the historical masters and the contemporary ones is we always focus on their success. We focus on da Vinci's, what he created, or Steve Jobs and the iPhone. What, let's look instead at those years when they were not successful, yep. when nobody heard of them, when yep. nobody knew about them. In fact, some people thought they were pretty bad, thought mm-hmm. they were failures. Um, those formative years, I really focus in the book on those formative years, so to demystify the idea that these people were born brilliant. So, you know, you understand that you're going to make mistakes, that you're going to lose yourself here and there, you're going to find your way back, but that if if what you're going through is an education as opposed to just these random events that are happening. So that's sort of the, one of the keys to the book. Which again is about taking your destiny into your hands and yeah. using it rather than being on the passive receiving end of what life throws your way. And that makes, you know, from the outside, it may look like you're in the same job, but how you respond to it makes all the difference in the world. Yes. Which is ultimately the most empowering mentality that anybody can apply to any conditions they find into. Yeah. And again, easier in some cases than other, that's granted, yes. but at the end of the day, easier or harder, it's the same thing. It's about whether you're able or not to pull it off the um, big time. Yeah. And, 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 and your level of preparedness. Mm-hmm. So when I came, the guy came to me to write The 48 Laws of Power, I mm-hmm. was really prepared. Right. I have a story in the book um, of Freddie Roach, the, mm-hmm. the great boxing trainer. He's one of the contemporary masters yep. I interviewed. Um, and Freddie's a great story because, okay, obviously he's no intellectually, he had no education essentially at all except, a, you know, as a kid. Right. Um, and he was boxing since the age of four. And he wasn't a great boxer. Mm-hmm. And he admits it. He was good, little, maybe a little better than good. Um, and by the time he's 26, he, turned, he was a professional. He's, he's finished. He took too many punches. His career is over. He's been boxing his whole life. Yeah. And now it's like over. Um, and so he's in Vegas, and he's uh, he's getting drunk every night, and he has working at telemarketing, and he's just like heading towards suicide yeah. or something. And then he heads back into the gym where he used to train with a trainer that used was his trainer, and he's just sort of hanging out. And he realizes, well, maybe I'll help mm-hmm. this guy while I'm hanging out, help some of the boxers because he's a little overworked. And then he realizes. I really like teaching. I really like imparting everything I learn. Actually, I was really born to be a trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the dividing line between success and failure is there is whether someone falls down the hole in the drinking and the telemarketing or they have enough wherewithal to go back into the gym and put themselves back there and see that there's another possibility and then reassess their life. That's like the dividing line yep. between someone who just gives up and another person who turns that bad experience into something really positive. And it's amazing how it can turn in on nothing. You know, it's like he goes to the gym that night, shit, the gym is closed. Ah, screw it, I'll go back drinking and never goes again. Exactly. No Freddy Roach. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, he goes to the gym and he's told, (laughs) no, we don't want anybody to help today. And he gets this courage and, you know. There are so many spots along the way where it can turn. And in fact, in that particular story, there were a lot of things where um, 
the 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 guy who is the trainer wasn't encouraging him to be there. Mm-hmm. He was not getting paid. He didn't get paid for months. Yep. Um, and he would go to the gym, and it would be closed. Or mm-hmm. you know, but he, he once he discovered that this was what he was meant to do, and nothing would stop him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of the deal because everybody has this idea of uh, you know we like the simple story of the tough underdog who's going through hard times, mm-hmm. find a solution, and then all doors open, and yeah. la la la. It is like. Again, that's a little too simple. It's sweet, it's a nice fairy tale, but most of the time is uh, once you do find it and you make the right move, another stumbling block is thrown your way. And then you need to find a way around that one. And then it's like, it's a constant game of some stretch of luck and some stretch of not. And now you navigate through both of them is what makes it more. Yeah, Freddie Rogers was a great example right there because it's uh, his stories. Yeah, far from an easy life, and yes. yet, look what he made out You of mean it. Manny Pacquiao wasn't sitting at the gym waiting for him when he came over that first time? And well, he said, my white brother, I've been waiting for you all along. I'm shocked. <laughs> I know. Well, the, the Manny Pacquiao story, I mean, Manny, hopefully he'll resurrect his career here, I'm a big fan of his, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, was, you know, Manny came to the uh, the States to, to see if he could, you know, expand his career and, and, and conquer a new market, and he went to 20 trainers, I don't know how many exactly, and they all said, forget it, you're too small, I'm not interested in Bantamweight, etc. And then he goes to Freddie Roach, and Freddie is, trains people by literally being in the ring with them, with his mitts, he's sitting, and he felt the guy's punch. None of these other people were in the ring, and, and he goes, God, this guy's got a, you know, yeah. he's really got snap on the punch, I can feel it. And he could see that this, he, this person had the material. Um, but that came from years of training that way, of like literally training his boxers in the ring. Um, so you know, he's he's an amazing story. The the one thing that's a, a sort of a counterintuitive idea in mastery um, is don't pay attention so much to money. And I know that's easy for some people to say. Sure. Who, you know, I've <clears throat> I've doing pretty well myself, but. Um, where people get caught up in is that it's all about getting money and security and comfort as quickly as possible, et cetera. Um, and, and in the end, people who have that mentality are the ones that are kind of sunk by they're in their mid thirties mm-hmm. uh, because it's sort of soulless to just be pursuing money. Yeah. You kind of burn out on it. Um, you start losing your hair and having affairs and getting in drugs and et cetera. It's where you, you want a bit of hunger when you're in mm-hmm. your 20s. Maybe it's not so good to have so much comfort. And you want to learn. So you want to take jobs or places where you're going to learn a lot. Right. Um, and they may not pay as well. You're going to work in a company where there's only five people, but you have hands-on stuff, and you're only going to be making $30,000 a year. And you're going to have to eat at Wendy's and maybe borrow a little from your mother. Or get that $80,000 job where you learn nothing take the lo- the other one you want to learn as much as possible it's it, the money will come to you eventually that's another right important theme in the book or maybe even better you learn that the money isn't quite that important you know there's an entire population of thousand oaks that sits up there yes. upside down in their mortgages yes. two cars they can't afford yeah. trying to play keep up with the joneses and they're a miserable miserable bunch yes. yeah because they did exactly what you said you know they yeah. took the quick job oh 80k out of college here we go and yeah. they sat in that miserable environment and it never got any better they lost interest they never learned anything and when it came time to squeeze out the middle management that was worthless yeah now they sit on the street with a sign yeah and it's amazing a dialogue i couldn't tell that, people enough uh, times that 
take that. Take those internships, you know. Right. Go and get your hands dirty. It's so important to get you to where you want to be, especially if you don't totally know where that is. Yes. A dialogue that I had a few times with nice people, not with dumb people no, no, no. who are horrible people, with really nice, sweet, smart people. More often than not, they have picked a job that, you know, doesn't make them totally throw up, but, you know, it's like they don't like it. They don't get anything out of it. They are stuck in it because they need to bring home the money to pay the bills and all of that. And before you know it, when you are talking about their passions, what makes them, you know, if you were to reinvent your life completely, let's say money is not a worry. So the one thing that you're always worried about, let's say you have it, fantasy, okay? What would you do? Panic. Because by now they've yeah. spent so much yeah. time doing something they don't want to do. Yeah, they, they don't know. Yeah. They don't know anymore what it is that they want to do. I know. You know? Squid boat. <laughs> well, you got it. You know. I've been watching these squid boats over the past few weeks up and uh-huh. down the coast because it's like the season, uh-huh. and it just—I'm just wildly fascinated by the whole thing. <laughs> that'd be great. That'd the, be great. I gotta go just try it out, or just yeah. to stand on and you know pull a rope or something uh-huh. just to see it. But they're allowed to spotlight these things, and like everything mm. you learn in hunting is you can't spotlight right. uh. squid. Spotlight all you want to. Oh really? So I saw this band. It was like up Zuma Beach probably 20 sets of them because it's a team with a big ship and then like uh-huh. a little skiff that pulls the net uh-huh. um, lined up and ready for sunset. Wow. wow. And they've all got these giant like 10K lights coming off of each wow. side of the boat. And it just looked like it went to the horizons. And I just, because yeah. I go up and down the PCH at night all the time, they've been out there for a while. So it's been sort of my, That's well, pretty screw exciting. Hollywood. I'm getting on a skid, squid boat oh, immediately. That'll be your next career. I think so. At least give it a try because uh-huh. I, I love being on the ocean and damn, I love fishing. So uh-huh. This could be what's been waiting yeah. for me. A reach as a plan B. Nice. I do have a plan B. Yeah. And I also found out through a friend of mine who runs a riverboat up and down the Cumberland River in Nashville every single day, full yeah. of tourists, you know, probably the mm-hmm. most difficult captain's license you can get because he's got 500 plus people on it. He's like, look, you can master the captain's stuff in five years. Uh-huh. Just get your feet on the boat. Uh-huh. And five years later, you'll have all the navigational skills and everything you need. And there you go. So come on out to Uncle Rich's squid boat and, <laughs> and fishing safari in five years, and we'll have a good time. Go catch some damn wahoos. Nice. Wow, that sounds exciting. But I'm all for it. It's silly things like that. You know, I think yeah. to be, you know, 40 plus now, you've got yeah. to have at least some plans of trying some different stuff. You can't sit in this hell hole for 30 years. It would yeah. definitely kill you. Whereas the opposite usually happens is the older people are, the less idea they have of what they are, what makes them happy because they have dedicated so much time and energy to something that's not, that they are... It's a distant memory from the where 18 and they had a vague idea of excitement. Oh, I want to try that. That's long gone. But those past couple of generations really had at least like a pension or something like that to hope for. Right. With that shit gone right. and all of us really like, obviously, I'll be working as a Walmart greeter till the end of my times. Yeah. Right. You know, you yeah. got to cook up a little something. And yeah, I'll probably fall off the boat the first day. But, you know. <laughs> At least I'm going to give it a try. That's a good yeah. And if you have to go that way, it's, that's not a bad way to that's go. That's a great yeah, story. Always, you know, oh, there's sharks in that water. But by God, would that not be the best story? <laughs> yeah. You want you want more than three generations down to remember who you were? Right. Oh, that was great, great Pappy Rich. bit about a shark on his first trip out, you know? That's right. Yeah. Winner. Yeah. <laughs> it hurt, yeah. but... Yeah. That's why, to me, one of the cool games to play is, um, regardless of whether you can actually apply it or not, to have a whole list that you keep your whole life of the things you would do if you didn't need to make any money, you know, just for fun, just because they feed your soul, just because they make you happy, you know. And the list, obviously, if uh, if you have some depth to you, 
is gonna go all over the place. It can go from uh, some very intellectual thing to some random practice. I want to learn how to make fire in the woods. Okay, yeah. good. Learn how to, you know, it's like, that to me is what makes it fun. That's also what gives the range of experiences and abilities mm -hmm. that a lot of the master you're referring to is mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. It's touching life through so many hands and tasting it in so many ways that by the time you're dead, hey, you had fun. You had a good time in the process. Yeah, you know? I have a quote in there from Da Vinci who says, just like a, a, a hard day's work brings a blessed sleep, a, a well-lived life brings a blessed death, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Which he was contemplating as he was on his deathbed, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, what a great life I lead, so yep. I, can, I can die. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, as a part of the realism, I understand the, the, the need to, to make money. Uh, sure. I, 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 it's not like... Uh, of course. I, I know myself the worst periods in time where I was very insecure about where the money would come from. So it's not a book about just uh, blowing everything off and finding your passion and playing the guitar in the subway and right. being a busker <laughs> or something like that. Right. It's a realist book. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, what's interesting is that a lot of people, so I, I, I like to cite Steve Jobs. He's a little bit of a cliche these days, so I'm, so I'm sorry about that. But this, the book is really interesting to read his biography. This guy could really care less about money, and, he, and, mm -hmm. and it was actually a problem. You know, he, he didn't really ever have a house. He never furnished it. He wasn't interested. He was just so absorbed in what he was doing and, right. and how exciting it was. And he went through periods of bankruptcy when he, the next computer was a disaster. And then he ends up being like one of the wealthiest people that ever lived on mm -hmm. the planet. Um, never, ever in his whole life ever thinking about it or intending that to be what would happen. Right. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a, 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 a lot of the people I interview are like that. They're not driven by money, but the money comes to them because they're, they're so excited. Yeah, that's not a bad problem to have, right? Yeah. <laughs> if it works out for you that way, great. No, but I like the idea that you bring that up because, of course, when we get into the whole follow your passion thing, it's easy yeah. to lose track that, hey, man, I need to put food on the table at the end of the day. Yeah. And that, to me, what good realism is about, is about looking at quality of life, which encompasses money as well. It's yeah. not that money is the evil that you can turn it into an evil that fucking you up if you yeah. are forgetting to all the other good stuff that you need for good quality of yeah. life. But clearly, everybody needs, at the end of the day, to pay the bills. You yeah. need to figure out a way to deal with that aspect of your life mm -hmm. and um, not make perfect sense. One thing that's fun as a game, too, is through all your books, you provide so many different examples of the yep. principles you bring yep. up. So you have a real-life story and human beings that you can relate to, yes. uh, not just a moral tale or something. What are some of your all-time favorites in terms of some of the great masters or power players or however you want to define it? <clears throat> Who are some of your the ones that get you most excited? Well, there, there are a lot of people that excite me. I'm kind of um, someone who's personally attracted to the eccentrics, the, the sort of the strange types in history. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, like a Julius Caesar is truly one of the strangest people in history. Yeah. Because not only is he, um, he's sort of somebody that learned warfare and strategy later in life. Mm -hmm. uh, he was some, a wealthy family <clears throat> in politics, but kind of a, a rich, spoiled kid a bit. Right. And, in any, and um, kind of extravagant, and he loves living well and going to the theater. <clears throat> and then he just finds his career as this incredible general. Right. And... Um, He's, he's 
like out there in front of his troops, um, you know, crossing rivers with them, nearly dies a hundred times. Um, and he has just the same flair for the dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, like, so in the war book, I always sort of chose the generals, like a Hannibal or Scipio or Julius Caesar or even Rommel, who's also a very strange character. Right. I'm very attracted to these people who are peculiar. Mm-hmm. Um, a big theme in mastery is uh, bringing out who what makes you different is what's is the source of your power. Right. And so these great strategists uh, have a much different approach from the others. Uh, so I'm sort of attracted to people like that. Um, and you know, I love um, like because I love Machiavelli. That period just just gets me so you excited. Nice. I, I, what I like about that period is it's it is like chess. Italy was a chessboard. Oh yeah, it was uh, all these very sm- some small principalities each fighting off each other. Pretty brutal, mm-hmm. total power game, um, and these these great characters. How can you have a pope um, who's like <laughs> so worldly? I'm talking about yeah. Cesare Borgia's father, oh, yeah. of course, who's just you know like having orgies in the Vatican and is using his son to take over Italy, and you know calls in the you know the pope calls in the the French king to help him, and then. You know, this kind of gamesmanship that's going on, and, yeah. and then you have Cesare Borgia, and you have the Medicis. I, I, it's so much drama, and the people are so larger than life. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I could write about the Renaissance for, for years and oh, years. It's fun. Def- Did yeah. you ever check out the, what do you think of the TV series? Did you see the Borgias on TV? I, I, I saw it, um, and it's interesting, and, and it's, it's beautiful to look at, and some of it's really good, but then sometimes I'm yelling, that did not happen. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. That that did not happen. Right. Um, so it's a little hard for me sometimes to watch these right. shows. I thought the show like... Rome oh. was, a, was a fairly accurate yeah, or I interesting in Rome. A little bit more than the Borgias, yeah. but the Borgias is, is pretty wonderful. Yeah. No, I had the same thing. You know, I watched the Borgias. I had fun. Their parts are like, eh, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it's interesting because in some cases, history's <clears throat> uh as fun and as exciting like you don't need to necessarily spice it up with something that completely off the wall that didn't happen and couldn't have even happened it's not even plausible kind of thing yeah and uh so that's where it's like it's a waste because not because oh it's history you can't touch it you know as long as you make it somewhat plausible exactly is when you go off the deep end and that's what rome i thought did very well because obviously not everything happens it's not a documentary it's not everything happens that way but Part of it is historical, and part of it, it makes sense. It could have worked that way, yes. and it flows, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, Rome was one of... When HBO canceled Rome, I wanted to cry. <laughs> be 30 years. I was like, come on, man. It was even going well. I think it was costing yeah. them too much. It yeah. was too much money. Yeah, I know the man who was the producer of that show. Right. And I, he, he's really brilliant, and he understands... Uh, he's a big student of history. Yeah. I don't know if some of these other shows, whether how much students of history they are. There was uh, one that I thought that was really funny in uh, the extras in the special features in Spartacus, the uh-huh. Stars TV series. The producer had uh, hired his writer and the writer was like, look, you know, I, to be honest, I don't really know a whole lot about <laughs> the history of this stuff. And the yeah. producer was like, 
even better. So it becomes material for fantasy right. stuff, which is fine. But yeah, if you love history, yeah. sometimes you win. Of course, of yeah. course. There's the fine line between historical realism and yeah. having fun with it. With no, yeah. definitely. But uh, yeah, in fact, for that first was I found the board just entertaining because yeah. that time period even if uh, I don't may not like every single thing about it yeah. I like the historical reconstruction I like some of the visuals I like to get a picture for what it may have felt or looked like yeah that that's and, pretty exciting um, yeah it, it, a lot more boring than the Borgias but you know the uh, Italian director Rossellini uh-huh. he did a series of show of television programs mm-hmm. in the 70s that were historical mm. And they are amazing, but they're they're not exciting. Right. But the uh, the costumes, everything, the the look is is brilliant, and it's much more realistic. So he did right. a series on the Medici's, yeah. on Descartes, on Galileo, nice. on Socrates, and they're re- they're they're quite they're 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 amazing. I think the people who um, anytime you reinvent history for the screen, yeah. I think that's really an art because if yeah. you do it right, man, you have done something amazing. You yeah. literally brought back to life giants from the past. How come no one's ever done Machiavelli himself? I know that's such a cool. Is he character. in the Borgias? He's in the Borgias, but you oh, know he's like sideways. In the, they, he shows up uh, a few times as a yeah. side character. Yeah, they. The casting choice was, I don't know, I'm not so sure. It's like he'd look like just this stern, mean, severe, oh, weird really? guy. Oh, and he was just like... Which is not the way he was at all. Right. You he know, was he, a, a total playboy, womanizer, love life, Yeah, wrote poetry. He's, he's not like that at all. Yeah, no, he not gets the... Machiavelli the high, no. There's some dry humor in there where you can see another side okay, to him that's okay. interesting, but they keep it very well guarded. Oh, okay, so I thought okay. uh, you could have... It wasn't bad, but you could have more fun with it. Uh, maybe I have to do a show, a Machiavelli a do television it. series. Okay. Do it, do it, do okay. it. It would work. <laughs> I think it would work great. Okay. That's a hell of a story right there. Yeah. One of my, my most disturbing Machiavelli story. I remember reading about him getting royally drunk and it being late at night and dark and hiring a prostitute having sex with her oh. and waking up oh, yeah, to find like out that she was yeah, <laughs> and had no teeth and he's like, yeah. <laughs> he's like yeah, yeah, yeah it wasn't one of his best days he wrote that in a, a famous letter describing right. that and his description of the woman he slept with is pretty graphic yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. he was a he was a fun guy okay, right anyway. That was not one of his most strategic moments, I guess. It, no. was, it could have worked better, yeah. but when it came to women, he he wasn't so strategic. No, he, he was he yeah, definitely any port in a storm. Yeah. <laughs> What's uh, projects in your future? Without giving too much away, but oh, I don't mind. Uh, well, in mastery, I have a chapter on social intelligence, mm-hmm. um, and basically, what I'm trying to say in that is. It's okay to you, you can be really good at what you're doing, but if you don't know how to handle people, mm-hmm. it won't matter, right? Uh, because you'll you'll screw yourself over so many times, you'll be the butt of all these games, and your life will be miserable. So you have to have social intelligence, yeah. And it is a skill. Learning how to play chess or martial arts is a skill through mm-hmm. repetition. Social intelligence is also a skill, and I sort of show you how you, you obtain it. My next book is focusing exclusively on that. And cool. basically what I'm saying is um, there's something called human nature. It's, it goes back thousands of years. There's, there's something that marks us as a species. We behave in certain patterns. Mm-hmm. There's certain emotions that all of us have. They're very primitive, 
and they cause a lot of the kind of unpleasant behavior that people engage in. And I'm going to give you in depth these laws of human nature so that you can really kind of read the people that you deal with on a higher level. So you understand why they're feeling envious or right. where that passive aggressiveness is coming or why they're so fucking lazy and not doing what you wanted to do or why they try and fool you into hiring them and then suddenly they're not who they said they were. Right. I want to give you the little code book nice. for deciphering all of their weird behavior. So that's what I'm trying to work on right now. I can't wait for the Southern transcription of bless your heart. <laughs> What's that? Bless your heart, which is usually code for go fuck yourself. Oh, oh, you mean when people say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. All those things. The South is really good at those kind of things. Oh, oh, even when they say something really congenial, but it means go fuck yourself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Always nice. <laughs> wow. Cool. Anything else you want to bring to the attention of the listeners or anything? Um... Uh, no, I, I don't know. I think we kind of covered everything. Um, nothing comes to mind unless something... Beautiful. You're then we're going to put a link to your websites and yeah. whether... Do you use I mean, Twitter it, at all? Or what's that? Do you use Twitter? I do, but I'm not a, I'm not a big... I'm not a big Twitterer. Right. Well, uh, we'll throw it in there. Yeah, Twitter but I have an account and, and followers. Um, the only other thing is this book is just coming out in paperback. Cool. Yeah, in fact, so I have the hard copy week, version. Right. Oh, right. Right now? Wow. Yeah. Well, by the time this comes out, it's going to be a month ago because we're going to go at the end of November. But, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. That's good. But, um, but plenty of time to hop on Amazon and order up a copy for Christmas. Yeah. Please use the Drunken Taoist link. Thank you, thank it's you, a, thank you. It's a good thing if, uh, I don't know, how you're, if you're a little bit older and you have kids or you're about to enter the work world, um, if, you're, if you're 60, the book's maybe a little late. I hate to say it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're 21 or 22, uh, and I had to get, oh, ask, you wanted to know which book of mine to read, I'd say Mastery first, if that's your age, and then maybe The Laws of Power. Right. Um, because, you know, that's like the critical turning point in your life and no right. one's there to guide you. And this book could maybe help you a little bit there. Nice. I've got a 20 year old's going to have one in his hot little hands in about three hours. Oh, so. good. Good. That's great. That's good. It was your very son? interesting. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, cool. He could use a little push in the, in the right direction. Oh, good. Okay. That's good to hear. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robert. Yes, thank you. Thank thank you. This so was much. awesome. Thank you. Much, much appreciated. It was fun. Enjoyed it. Cool. That's it. It's a wrap. great conversation real quick a couple of things our t-shirts if you guys uh, want drunken taoist t-shirts as usual send me an email uh, it's in the episode notes is b-o-d-h-i-1974 but again because my pronunciation suck read it rather than listen to me because it's better thank you to daisy house music for the soundtrack um what else we got amazon link please 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 keep us in mind for your holiday shopping uh, if you can use the link you guys don't spend an extra dime and yet we get a kickback from amazon so that would be very sweet there's a great website that says when you when you 
go through that link, you're giving some of that soulless corporate blood money back to the guys who need it. So don't be afraid to click on that. I like that, big time. And now, last but not least, let's mention the donations. And this is a bunch of people because I'm, I'm not doing actually donations for the next one because we are run out of time. I'm, so I'm condensing everybody who donated in the last 17 million years all in one. Mega butchering. So here we go. Let the butchering begin. I think I can handle the first. David Rudd. Okay, no, I lied. David Rudd, Rudd, something like R-U-D-D. Rudd, probably. I'm hoping. Uh, I'm gonna fuck up the next one. And he's a repeated donor, too, but I'm still gonna fuck it up. It's not so, Mr. Tampon <clears throat> again, is it? No. Eugene Lelivre, if he's French, or Lelivre, I'm not sure. And he comes from one of the coolest places where we ever got donations. He's a repeat again. He's Waipukurau, New Zealand. Always nice. We have an, somebody else from New Zealand, Stanley Barnett. Thank you so much. Uh, Rotana Young. Timmy Tampons Heber. There he is. He's there again. Yes. One of the coolest first names ever coming up. D'Artagnan. And fuck if I can get the last name right. Is D'Artagnan Air. Okay, you try, man. Oh, I, I just I've can't even begin. Ach, I don't know. Yeah, sorry, man. D'Artagnan, you know, that's a great first name. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Kerry Markley, or something like that. Jason Maxlow. Um, Daniele Tripodi, a fellow very much understand the dilemma of everyone calling you Daniel, because he has my exact first same first name and you know of um, Italian origin and uh, so everyone in the universe always would you know would in the classroom would be like Miss Danielle it's like oh fuck again so yes I'm very familiar with that I feel your pain <laughs> my co-namer Eric Follis Aistis Juska that's great Stephen Corliu from Argyle New York Stephen R. Corliu cool uh, Bill Laskowski, something like that. Bill Laskowski. Uh, Ray, shit, I have no idea your last name. L double A double K O Laco. Sounds perfect. I'm guessing. J Pomerville. Uh, Chris Burgess, who, uh, by the way, I'm going to put a link in the episode notes. He's working on a legal case uh, um, that's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, you guys, I- I'm not going to, you guys check out the link. It's basically for a human rights issue, and I'll put the link in the episode notes about this story. And then one more person that I need to mention. He didn't donate, but he did something that was just as cool. He put up a review of the Drunken Tawit podcast on iTunes, and I kid you not, the review says something along the lines of, I'd rather be sodomized by Satan than miss an episode of the Drunken Tawit podcast. That's Edward Feldman. You're a poet, man. What can I say? We will get you if you need a family-sized pack of Vaseline for your <laughs> trouble. And uh, thank you so much. So all of you guys who have donated, all of you guys who have helped in any way, thank you, thank you, thank you for making all of this possible. And um, sweet dreams.
And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon.